Welcome everyone to episode 175 of the Reds Unrestricted Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, David Comerford, and I'm going to be giving you my reaction to Liverpool's 2-1 win over Crystal Palace. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. So we're back after our midweek off for another episode, and we're back to talk about a victory. In this case, like I said, a 2-1 win over Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park, where Liverpool struggled for large periods, really. Um, Jean-Philippe Mateta actually opened the score for Crystal Palace just before the hour mark from the penalty spot, but then with 15 minutes of normal time remaining, Jordan Ayew picked up a red card and that changed the game. Within a minute of that, Mohamed Salah equalised for Liverpool and then one minute into 10 added, Right at the end of the game, Harvey Elliott got what proved to be the winning goal with a superb individual effort. And Salah's effort, I should mention, was his 200th for Liverpool and his 150th in the Premier League as well. So let's begin with a three-word match review. And I would go for ugly title race because that's what this is right now. It doesn't feel like any of the three main protagonists, and that's Liverpool, City and Arsenal. I think, obviously... Recording this after Aston Villa beat Arsenal, following up beating City in midweek. Some people will put them in the conversation, but certainly the, the three sides who, who you feel can genuinely win this league at the moment. I mean, maybe if it gets to later in the campaign and Villa are still in there, we have a, a different conversation. But those three favourites, you'd say, I don't think any of them are at the best right now, but Liverpool... Uh, have been consistently battling their way to three points. And in this particular game, Klopp called it basically the poorest performance he's seen for 75 minutes that ultimately ended in a victory. Liverpool just couldn't break down the low block of Crystal Palace, um, whose game plan was working a treat, you would have to say. They created next to nothing um, really within the game. Even when they went 1-0 down in that sort of period between like the 57th minute and the red card, they weren't pinning Crystal Palace back in the manner that you'd expect. You knew that you would have thought it'd be sort of really Palace camped on the edge of their own penalty area and put them under concerted pressure. But they needed the red card really to um, swing the game in their favour. So things broke their way in that regard, definitely. And to be fair, they were fortunate not to go 1-0 down in the first half in open play when um, Jefferson Lerma had a shot at the end of a counter-attack and Alisson had to make a phenomenal save and I'll come on to that again a little bit later on. But then ultimately the red card changed the game and soon after Liverpool got the lucky break of the deflection on the Salah shot, the kind of luck incidentally that you probably need to be winning trophies. And then after that, to be honest, watching it, it felt inevitable that Liverpool would be able to go and get a winner after that. And it was Harvey Elliott who ultimately provided it with that running um, brilliant effort from the edge of the penalty area. So, that I mean, that was the only real sort of quality you saw from a Liverpool player within the game. Um, maybe that's a little bit harsh, but it certainly felt like it was a performance short of inspiration. But one of those days, and we've had them before at Selhurst Park, I think this is the... Third time in Klopp's tenure, Liverpool have come from a goal down to win 2-1 away to Palace. And the fourth time they've won by that scoreline at Selhurst Park overall. 
one of those days where in a strange way the poorer the performance the more satisfying the victory um, and I'll come on to talk about where this team is at sort of results versus performance wise a little bit later in today's episode before I kind of get into the individual standout performances like we normally do I thought I sort of touch on the decisions that were made um, in today's game, some of them generating a little bit of controversy. Um, first off, Crystal Palace have a penalty awarded on field and overturned by VAR after a lengthy on-field review um, where Endo was dispossessed by Will Hughes on the edge of the box and then Van Dijk brought down Edouard in the area. But the VAR decided that Will Hughes had fouled um, Endo in, in dispossessing him and I think it was uh, clearly the correct call. Um, slightly soft as a foul, but a foul nonetheless. It's not only the nudge in the back, it's sort of the contact on the leg as well, and the, that kind of thing always gets given. So VAR did its job there. The second penalty, which Crystal Palace were given, I think can't have any complaints from a Liverpool perspective. You know, Gerald Kwanzaa just mistimes his challenge, and it's a pretty much objective foul. And then I think the one that is really sort of rubbed Palace and, and maybe some others who have a vested interest in Liverpool dropping points up the wrong way is um, the red card for Jordan Ayew. And the commentator on TNT Sports made an interesting point about this. He said, doesn't feel that the two incidents should lead to you losing your place on the pitch. The first of those was him stopping um, Van Dijk taking a free kick. And the second was, I think, fouling Elliot to stop a counter-attack. And I see where, you know, Fletcher's coming from in that sense because, you know, they do look like fairly kind of um, innocuous incidents, you might say. But I think really the problem was with our interpretation of the rules there because really we don't like it when a player gets sent off for a second yellow that is equivalent to a first yellow. It's almost like the unwritten rule in football is that a second yellow has to be kind of an orange card type challenge. So when it's just a pretty textbook tactical foul where, again, it's not kind of a lunging slide tackle or anything like that, we're always a bit stunned um, when we see the player actually sent off. But really what you've seen there is an application of the letter of the law in terms of it's, clear, it's two clear yellow card defences, you know, obstructing play and then committing a professional foul. So the referee um, has, has done his job there, I think you'd have to say. But again, it, it's just like, in our minds, the bar for a second yellow is higher. In, and it's not something we admit, it's just almost, we, we've kind of been taught that by watching football and seeing referees kind of wanting to avoid sending players off in the past. But on this occasion, um, he didn't. And he, he stuck to the rule book and obviously... Palace were surprised, but I think everyone was slightly surprised when the red card came out. But in terms of the actual two incidents themselves, they are both yellow card fouls. And we obviously know what two yellows mean. So you can't raise the bar for a second yellow. And in that sense, it was the correct to send Ayu off. Roy Hodgson gave a pretty remarkable interview after the game um, where he just spoke about the incidents and he said that you know, he complained about Van Dijk kicking the ball against Dyer. He was sort of like, you know, why a Liverpool a team of this quality, you know, this prestige or whatever, you know, resort to tactics like that to get players booked. But 
the reality is that I think obviously Van Dijk has done that to draw attention to where I was standing. But if he's going to obstruct a free kick, he's within his rights to point that out to the referee. Because a lot of the time in football, stuff like that goes unpunished unless players make it obvious. So, you know, Van Dijk was, you know, probably sensible to do that ultimately in terms of ensuring that Palace's kind of antics to, to break things up um, were recognised by the referee. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that in the least. Um, and Hodgson's interview, I think he just came off a little bit like a grumpy old man, to be brutally honest. I mean, there was a point where he said, I'm sick of these yellow cards for time wasting. And it just sounds a little bit like, you know, the game has moved in a direction where it's designed to clamp down on sort of underhand tactics. And that for me is a good thing. And to be honest, the fact that this game's ended up in a discussion about VAR, I mean, VAR got the decisions right today, um, to be honest. And it just feels like why does there have to be a, a big discourse over the technology every single match? And, and why does that have to be the segment that they have? I don't think it's good for the game that it's like that. I think it's a big part of the reason that people like people get tired of VAR is that it's just constantly on the airways. Because in a game like today, I don't think it needs to be a dominant discussion point at all. The only reason that I'm kind of going through these decisions is that, again, it has just become so loud because of Hodgson complaining. And I don't know why he's sort of taken the opportunity to turn this into a, a big rant about the state of football at the moment. I mean, obviously, Palace are struggling. It was a very disappointing loss for them because of how well they played for large periods. But like I said, I think all of the decisions, it's kind of hard to really argue with with any of them, I would say. Um, and yeah, I mean, Hodgson at one point said, I'm sick of these yellow cards for time wasting, um, which pretty much says it all. Um, I think it, it's a little bit of a case of his teams have, have been relatively successful using some of these methods over the years. And now that they're gone, um, maybe that's part of the reason Palace are in such a, a predicament at the moment. But anyway, we'll leave that to one side now and we'll talk about um, some of the impressive individual performances from Liverpool. And we'll, we'll have to start with the match winner here in Harvey Elliott. I mean, when it got to half-time in this game, you had the feeling that it was going to be the kind of match where he in particular could come on and make an impact. We've seen him you know, be outstanding off the bench all season and, and really elevate the Liverpool performance. Oddly, he hasn't found the same level when he started games. And it's interesting to think about why that might be. I mean, is there something within his game that particularly lends itself to coming on when games are more stretched, when teams are more tired, um, when Liverpool as a whole are that bit more, you know, mentally and physically fatigued? Um, because... Some of his contributions off the bench this season. I mean, it's some of the best kind of super sub play that I've seen from a Liverpool player under Jurgen Klopp. And then he finds himself in this cycle where he has this really strong performance off the bench. And then it comes to the next game. He starts, doesn't really kind of make the most of the chance. Then he's back on the bench and it just keeps going round in a loop. And I think on Thursday, he'll start against Uni and SG in that Europa League dead rubber. Um, hard to know how much of a bearing that'll have on the selection for United, but if he delivers in that game on the back of how he's done here, then he probably would have a place in the team for that one. But the question for him is, you know, finding that consistency and being able to sort of 
use this launch pad that that he gives himself when he when he comes off the bench and makes a transformative impact to improve his own stock in the squad. Because right now it's probably more useful for Liverpool that he's doing that than it is for him because he isn't able to combine it with the strong kind of starting performances. But certainly to have someone who's consistently proven he can be a difference maker off the bench is a huge asset to um the squad o- over the course of the season. Um another player who came on, you know, club substitutes had a big impact in this game. I'm not really gonna touch on Curtis Jones, but he assisted Mohamed Salah not long after he came on. Um somebody came on at half time, Joe Gomez, he moved into right back, Trent went to the sixth position permanently. Um Gomez actually got man of the match and this might sound harsh, but really I think he was only doing the basics on the attacking side of things. But the thing that made him stand out in that regard was that so few of his teammates were able to execute those on the day. And it's just simple things like, you know, driving forward and playing a one-two with a player who's um kind of in the channel and then making that run on and just executing those combinations around the area. The kind of thing that, you know, we say time and again can unlock a low block that like the kind that Crystal Palace were using yesterday. And he just injected a threat into Liverpool's attack on play that hadn't previously been there. And it was obviously his cross that, that led to the equaliser. So a strong day for him. But then, you know, Mohamed Salah is another one, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, 200 Liverpool goals. Now I think he's only the fifth player to reach that mark for the club and 150 in the Premier League, which sees him match Michael Owen intent all time I think he can probably get to second in the Liverpool list you look at it he needs 28 to match Billy Liddell 41 for Gordon Hodgson and 85 for Roger Hunt might be difficult for him to get to Roger Hunt but I think I don't think it's a totally unrealistic target especially if he if he signs a new contract and I haven't sort of broken down what that would need sort of season by season it just feels like it might be within reach for him. Ian Rush, I think, is on 346 goals, so unfortunately he's not going to be catchable. But in fairness, Salah only joined Liverpool in his mid-20s, so to finish second would still be an, an extraordinary achievement. Um, and hopefully that's something that motivates him to kind of continue making history at the club. Premier League-wise, he needs another 12 um, to move sort of into the top nine by matching uh, Jermaine Defoe, who's kind of higher on that list than I, I thought, in fairness. Uh, 13, we'll see a match Robbie Fowler, who's the highest player on there, who's actually worn the Liverpool shirt. Um, and then 25, to get to Thierry Henry, who, who for me is the best Premier League player of all time, um, which would obviously be a quite a statement to get there as well. So those are the players who are kind of in immediate view for Salah. And obviously there's a lot of this season to go to get closer to them and and also, hopefully, um, many future seasons to come. And obviously, it's it's one of those moments, one of those milestones. And, and Salah seems to be getting there every week at the moment. But this one is particularly significant. And it makes you just think once again about how big a sort of a legend you're watching. And I think one thing that sort of struck me from this game is, is the comments made by Harvey Elliott on the pitch after the match when he was actually being interviewed with Salah. And he said... You know, he works harder than any everybody else and nobody has the same sort of work ethic as he does. And for me, that's the thing that repeatedly stands out when people talk about Salah, people who actually work with him and things like that. He's got this commitment to 
keeping his body in immaculate condition, which obviously pays off with his injury record. I think that applies to sort of his recovery, his diet, things like that. You know, he's he's sort of willing almost to suffer um, more than anybody else to stay in 100% shape. And I, I, again, ab- above all, it would be just sort of the time he puts in in the gym. I mean, we, obviously, we know what like his physique's like. We know how robust he is. And he was telling Elliot as well, it, as as we learned in that interview, that he you know should spend more time, more hours in there, and he seems to be sort of the player in the squad who is willing to go that extra mile in that regard. You know, it's not just staying out on the training pitch; it's it's putting in the work um with, with the weights as well. Um, and and there's players out there who are sort of similar to Salah in their level of talent but Salah's you know miles ahead of them when it comes to legacy and achievements and I think that is because Salah has this incredible work ethic that those players you know don't don't have really and that's the kind of thing that can make the difference you know you have a player who is clearly incredibly gifted but he understands that to truly do himself justice he needs to not kind of have any regrets and basically just give everything he can, not just in matches, but on a daily basis during the weeks to extract his maximum potential. And obviously the result, the results that we've seen from that, you know, he, he is one of the best players of the 21st century in football, you know, even going beyond sort of his era at Liverpool and the Premier League and things like that, you know, we're watching an icon of the game really here and there's few players who kind of reach a point where they're beyond reproach but I think with Salah there's always has to be you know you you watch him and you watch him critically and you know you don't say he's you know he can't he can't escape criticism completely when he doesn't do well but also at the same time you can't ask any questions of him at this point you know serious questions because the consistency with which he's produced the contribution he's made to Liverpool is just um was something that was unimaginable when he arrived, even if we were um excited about the signing for the most part. But another player who once again showed that they were world class at the end of the pitch um was Allison. I mean it's interesting with Salah, he had another one of those games where he was sort of very quiet but then comes away with a goal and assist. We've seen that multiple times this season. Almost similar with Allison, where you know he's not active for large parts of the game, not for any sort of detrimental reason, but just because the ball's not sort of around the penalty area. But then he, he proves his worth in one or two moments, and the save he made from um, Lerma in the first half was absolutely phenomenal. And the thing I would say about that is, it's the rare kind of save where if that ball had gone in, I don't think anybody's really going to ask questions the goalkeeper, such was the power with which the ball was struck but I think Alisson, you know, just uses anticipation and his speed to kind of spring over in the goal and you could see the power that was on the ball by the fact that even though he got a strong hand to it it looped up and almost went in anyway, Trent's obviously having to come back and clear it and it reminded me in that sense of the save against Newcastle from, from Almiron, which I think won the save in the month award um, where he gets a hand to it, but it still comes off the underside of the bar. Um, not maybe quite as good as that, but certainly up there um, with one of the best he's made. Um, and then there was another one at the end where the ball's whipped in by Elise Anderson, gets onto it at the back post. Alisson gets down so quickly 
um, to push it away. And it looked for a second as if Liverpool were going to concede an equaliser there. In the end, it looked like it was probably going to be offside based on the replay, but you know, Alisson didn't know that at the time. And credit to him for, you know, the fact that that was the second best save he made in the game um, says it all. And I think it's another day that just underlines his clear position at the top of the global goalkeeper rankings. And for me, what what's quite striking is that a few years ago, there used to be a debate over whether he was the best in the world. But now it feels like much of the British football media recognises him as the clear number one um, in that conversation. And I'm not sure there's another player in sort of different positions who's inspiring that kind of consensus right now. I mean, maybe Haaland as a striker, but then, you know, you have players like Harry Kane, for example, who are rivaling him. And then, you know, you look at other areas like right back where it's like, is it Trent, Reese James, Walker, Trippier, things like that, um, who are number one. But I just think that in an era where people don't agree on anything in football, I think there's a striking amount of people who agree that Alisson's the best and, I remember, I can't remember what year it was, but we had John Harrison um, on this podcast who's sort of a goalkeeping analyst and he made the point that while there might be better distributors than Alisson, um, there might be goalkeepers who command their box a little bit better. There's nobody who combines so many world-class attributes in the way that he does. And that, for me, still holds true to this day and that is what makes him the best in the world, really. And um, it's hard to imagine where Liverpool would be without him, not just this season, but also kind of across Jürgen Klopp's tenure. You know, he is someone who has made everything work in terms of this incredibly high-risk style of play. I don't think they could execute it if he wasn't there. Um, And it's rare that a goalkeeper would sort of have that much bearing on how a team can almost set up and how much confidence a team has really in their ability to execute an aggressive approach. Um, so yeah, I think again, similar to uh, Salah, he's just elevated himself into this into this tier of living legend um, and you're just watching him build on a legacy that very few players in the history of the club have been able to match as well. So I think just to finish up in today's episode, we should talk about where Liverpool are at in terms of the kind of collective form at the moment and where they're at relative to what they can be. There was a tweet from um, one of my colleagues, actually, uh, Josh Williams, that kind of um, resonated a little bit. He said, Liverpool are top of the league with one loss since April and the best goal difference. And I'm sat here feeling clueless as to how good they actually are. So I went through the results this season and thought to myself, so how many of these performances have been truly convincing? And I think the best one is probably the 3-0 win against Aston Villa. I mean, obviously it wasn't at Villa Park, but with each week that goes by, that looks like a, a better and better game. Um, I think you can probably put the 3-1 win over West Ham in there and the 3-0 win over Forest. Maybe the 3-0 against Brentford, but I think Brentford had a lot of, of good chances in that game and, and maybe the scoreline is not entirely reflective. And then I think also the 1-1 draw with City was not too far short of as good as you can reasonably expect um, in that game. But 
essentially it's somewhere between three and five genuinely complete performances out of I think 16 games now uh, for Liverpool and you've got to be wary of even though Liverpool are top of the table now you've got to be wary of a results-based analysis Man United have just shown that you know Ten Hag one manager of the month for example but everybody sort of knew watching them play that the problems that were cropping up in those games were going to rear their ugly head eventually and then sure enough they lose comprehensively to Bournemouth on Saturday um so you can't just kind of blindly look look at the table um as a an indication of a team's quality I means sometimes it does lie and and those lies come out eventually I suppose um the one thing I'd say with Liverpool that makes them different even in the sense that their performances aren't always uh, even though there's sometimes holes in those performances is that this has been going on for like Josh referenced in a tweet I mean it's going on since April now we're coming towards the end of the year it's one loss in 26 matches Liverpool in that period which is getting closer and closer to being a full season are in form that would get them high 80s in terms of points and that might be enough to win the title this year and it kind of feels a little bit like that 1920 season where Liverpool were more of a results machine and they weren't necessarily hitting that sort of 7, 8, 9 out of 10 level um, on a week-to-week basis and um, that's the thing people forget about that season that Liverpool got 99 points and won the league by what looked like a mile but the individual games themselves were often a huge scrap and they needed so many late goals so many sort of ugly victories and that's what that title was built on that season and people I think outside Liverpool forget that and it feels like this team was it clearly isn't as good as that side was it's sort of similar in their character I mean it's someone Salah referenced in the game just you know the relentlessness and the constant belief and that is something that is self-perpetuating because you know they brought that into the late stages of the game today based on previous games like Newcastle and Fulham for example this season and then they'll now have another one to kind of bolster that belief later in the season and Salah sort of drew that comparison to, to that team in terms of the mentality which is an area that was criticized last season so that's very reassuring to hear um it's, yeah, it's just a mentality. It's the ability to kind of grind out games. Um, and I also think that it's the fact that Liverpool are winning matches with not just 11 players, but 15 or 16. I mean, huge impact from the substitutes today, huge impact from them across the season as a whole. And it just goes to show you that, that squads win games and squads, you know, hopefully this season and as we've seen in the past, squads win titles as well. Um, and Liverpool have got that proven capacity to to change games off the bench and Jürgen Klopp's obviously done very well um, in that regard as well. So I think that there are legitimate questions to be asked about how well Liverpool are playing but equally I think we've seen for a sustained period now that Liverpool have been in elite level form despite those questions being asked. So that says to me that they have got the ability to grind out results, which is really important. I think they've got the mentality and they have the strength of squads. They've got several qualities that you'd look at and say they're befitting of a team who can seriously compete for the title. Um, I think one of the weaknesses that was maybe exposed today on the other side is that 
they might need a centre back in January. Obviously, we saw Joel Matip ruled out for basically the rest of the season with a uh, ACL injury, which is a big blow considering how well he was playing. Liverpool might need to go out and get a centre back in January now because Canate, I think it was telling today that he was on the bench. I mean, he's not going to be able to play two meaningful games in a row. Um, just because of his track record with injuries, not just this season, but in previous seasons, which to me is a worry. You know, I think he, I think he's brilliant, but he's the one you want to build your defense around long term, and it's going to play obviously a vital role this season now. Um, without Matip, um, being available, but he has to be managed so carefully that do you have to then rely on players like? Kwanzaa, who has been very impressive, but obviously made a mistake today and is only very early in his career. And and then there's Gomez as well, but he's had his own, obviously, issues with injuries and he might be needed, like we saw today, to provide cover at right back as well. It just feels like the squad's getting a little bit thin in that area and that's someone that could have an issue, not only in the Premier League, but also in other competitions as well, with Liverpool going for glory on, on multiple fronts, to be honest. So I do think that if Liverpool could go out and bring someone in for sort of that mid-tier price range, you know, early 20s, maybe left-footed, someone who can um, kind of make that step up to the elite level, you know, someone who's knocking on the door of stardom, like the kind of sign and they specialise in essentially another can say just maybe without that kind of injury history to worry about. I think that is something that could make a difference. I mean, we spoke for so long about the need to bring in a number six um, and ideally both of those positions would be addressed. But you do think now that maybe with Matip going down, it might actually be a higher priority to address that centre-half issue. So I think that's maybe a new area that's cropped up that you'd be concerned about now. Um, and it's not the only thing that's a bit of a worry. And I do think this title race is, is going to heaven flow. This is a day... Um, well, Saturday certainly was anyway where it's very much gone in Liverpool's favour with Arsenal losing but there's going to be days where Liverpool drop points and Arsenal win or, or City win and things like that and I don't think that there's any team at the moment who's clear of the other two in terms of their quality so naturally I think they're going to stay close and I think it is going to swing back and forth over the course of the season and it's RT Liverpool building too much of an advantage I think one thing that's reassuring in terms of Liverpool's problems is that the other teams are up against aren't complete. I mean, this is the poorest Man City have looked for for quite a while. I mean, they struggled in the first half of, of last season, I suppose, relative to their top standard. But just like this is a sustained sequence now, speaking before, they, they play Luton on Sunday where they have struggled and um, looking as vulnerable defensively as they have um, in a long, long time as well. Um, given the quality that they have, the the amount of serial winners they have in the, in their dressing room, um, Guardiola, you know his his status within the game, you'd have to back them to to turn that around before long. Hopefully, from the Bulls' perspective, they've already got a, a big gap over them by the time that happens. Because I think if City are in the frame and they're running, then their rivals are going to be worried about what we've seen repeatedly, where they just find that extra gear and they almost become invincible in that stretch so they for me are still the main concern even if there's a bit of distance between themselves and Liverpool and then as for Arsenal I think almost similar to Liverpool in that they've picked up quite a few 
ugly victories. Um, I think they're maybe a little bit more solid, but equally they're not as um, effective going forward, I don't think either. And I'd say their weakness in terms of the goalkeeper department is bigger than any of the problems that Liverpool have. Um, or certainly more glaring than any of the issues that Liverpool have. Um, so it's not as if Liverpool are going up against complete teams or they're a complete team themselves, but you've just got to beat the sides that are in front of you. Maybe you know you don't always need to be perfect. Um, and I think another thing just to mention before I wrap things up is that Liverpool will, regardless of results on Sunday, be at least seven points clear of fifth place. So considering that priority one this year was to qualify for the Champions League, that in itself is reassuring. And hopefully they've got a cushion to fall back on. If they go through a period of rough form or a period where they have a few injuries piling up, where even if they lose ground in the title race at that stage, they still don't have to look over their shoulder in terms of top four too much. Because obviously the main objective heading into the season and, and things are shifting now, but the main objective was just to qualify for the Champions League. So it's, it's definitely positive to see that Liverpool are already putting distance between themselves and the pack in that regard. And hopefully they can make it an, a non-discussion um, by the time the running rolls around. But I'll leave it there for this podcast. Those of you following me on Twitter will know that I actually tried to record this on Saturday night, then accidentally deleted it. So it's my second go at it. Hopefully you have enjoyed it. And if you have, please do give us a five-star review on whatever platform you are listening on. And in terms of our next episode, we'll be back after the Europa League game against Union SG um, in midweek. So make sure you stick around for that. Liverpool obviously already qualified as group winners, but maybe we'll get a chance to see some players we don't normally see playing. And they'll have a chance to impress Jürgen Klopp, but my voice is flagging, as you might be able to hear from the amount of continuous talking that I've done. So we'll leave it there, but make sure you do join us for the next episode of Reds Unrestricted. Until then, take care.